and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by the Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. The following sermon is by Dr. Danny Campbell, senior pastor at the Tabernacle, and was recorded during our Sunday morning service. To view the entirety of our service, please visit our Facebook page at The Tabernacle Family or our YouTube channel at The Tabernacle Today. Additional information about The Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles as we join Dr. Danny for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Okay, so turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to read Matthew 1 and 2 in a moment. We'll rejoin our study in Colossians uh, in January, but we'll take this week and next week, of course, to celebrate the birth of Christ into the world. And as you're turning there to Matthew 1, uh, you may be aware that today begins the eight-day celebration that our Jewish friends call Chanukah or Hanukkah. It will go from today, December 18th, eight days through December 25th, Christmas Day. And because different calendars calculate things different way, the Hebrew calendar, lunar calendar, solar calendar, etc., Hanukkah doesn't always overlap with December 25th, but it does this year, and it did the first year of Hanukkah, which is very interesting. Now, Hanukkah is not one of the festivals that the Jews were commanded to obey in the first part of the Bible, the Old Testament. And I thought this would be a good time to just share with you how the Jews uh, have their Old Testament flow. And it is the exact same content that's in an English Old Testament, but it actually the books are 24 instead of 39 because they combine a few. And also it flows in three sections. Uh, it's called the Tanakh. The Tanakh is how it's uh, said. And that is taking the T from Torah, the law, or the instructions, the first five books, and then taking the N from Navim or the prophets, and then the K from Ketuvim or the writings, and it's the Tanakh, uh, which is very interesting. And on the back of your notes, I put how the order of the Jewish Bible lays out. It's the exact same content as our English Bibles. That's just the way it flows. And that's why when Jesus spoke of uh, the blood from Abel to Zechariah, he was talking about how it was another reinforcement of his belief in the inerrancy of the entire Old Testament because Abel was the first martyr and Zechariah at the end of Second Chronicles is the last martyr there. And so uh, that's how it flows. But again, Hanukkah is not one of the festivals the Jews were commanded to obey in the Tanakh, the Old Testament. But it is about a key event that happened in Israel before Jesus came and was born in Bethlehem. And it involves the day of December 25th. So what is Hanukkah as you talk to any Jewish friends you have this week? Well, the word Hanukkah means dedication in Hebrew. In John 10, Jesus actually celebrated Hanukkah in Jerusalem. John 10, 22 and 23 say he was in Jerusalem for the Feast of Dedication. And I don't know why more English translations don't just write Hanukkah there because that's what it was. The holiday celebrates the heroic recapture and rededication of the Jewish temple on December 25th, 165 BC after it had been desecrated by Greco-Syrian forces under Antiochus IV. Antiochus IV called himself Antiochus Theos Epiphanes, the visible God, but outside his hearing, his opponents called him 
Antiochus Epimenes, which means madman. And don't you just love when there's a play, of wor- play on words, play on speech in another language uh, that you don't understand until it's brought in like that. Not Epiphenes, but Epimenes. Now, just, just back up a second. Imagine if the wonderful country of Taiwan uh, that uh, we've seen Mark and Laura Hefner speak to us here before, wonderful missionaries there, some of us have taken trips there, and the folks there have seen God do some great things in the last few years. The percentage of evangelicals has actually doubled in the last decade, which is wonderful. So they're having their moment that many of the other Chinese area peoples have had. But imagine if China that wants to destroy and take over Taiwan did that And then 200 years later, a group of uh, rebels within Taiwan were able to take their country back for a few decades before China crushed them again, right? The Greco-Roman, the Greco-Syrian forces had taken over Israel uh, as predicted by the prophet Daniel as he laid things out in the wonderful prophetic book of Daniel. And uh, some great rebels in Israel had taken it back for a few decades. And on the front end of that, they were able to recapture first the area of Judea and Samaria. Uh, It's called West Bank in the news, but it's Judea and Samaria. And then they were able to recapture Jerusalem and they set out to uh, clean up the temple that had been defiled by Antiochus IV, Antiochus Ephany. So they had a few decades of uh, Jewish rule again before the Romans then crushed them and it became the time that we celebrated at Christmas when to an occupied Israel uh, the gospel came the message of Jesus came as he was incarnated and born in 168 BC three years after or three years before 165 BC on December 25th Antiochus the madman had slaughtered a pig he had completely desecrated the Jewish temple and he slaughtered a pig and of course that was something the Jews would just uh, be horrified at and he sprinkled the blood on the altar he actually erected an altar to Zeus and Roman gods there in the temple in Jerusalem. And it was just horrifying. So when they were able, when those rebels were able to recapture uh, Jerusalem and the temple, they set out to cleanse the temple and the rebuilt altar was ready to go on December 25th, 165 BC. And the Jews call it the month of Kislev, Kislev 25. And again, the calendar, sometimes Hanukkah starts in November, sometimes it starts in January, just like happens with Easter time and dating because of different calendars and things like that. Now, you've probably seen the Jewish menorah candelabra before. There's a picture of it there. There's always a center light uh, that's lit up and it's gonna be used to light the other days for our Jewish friends during this eight-day celebration of Hanukkah. And it's held for eight days because as they were rededicating the temple, uh, supposedly they only had enough oil to burn the temple's important lampstand for one day. And yet the oil lasted for eight days. And so during Hanukkah, our Jewish friends take the starter candle and they light the first one the first night, second, third, fourth, and at the end of the eight days, all nine candles are lit there. And it's a beautiful thing. And uh, then also, uh, because of probably influence of Christmas, uh, they decided, now listen, our kids are enamored with this whole thing about Christmas and getting gifts and presents and things. And so later, Jews added in the observance of, for every night of Hanukkah, our kid's going to get a gift and a present. 
And so eight days of present giving, not just one. And of course, the Jewish children the world over love that as they participate in that. And it kind of is neat. I remember that firing our own children's imagination when they thought, Christmas, you get one gift. Hanukkah, you get eight. You know, it just lays out like that. Well, they, we give eight gifts on one day rather. Anyway, you get it. So Hanukkah has become a fun time for Jewish folks to remember God's past deliverances and to look forward to when the temple will be rebuilt again. And one thing they do that's fun is they spin a, a little top called a dreidel. Perhaps you've seen it. I think we have a picture of it too. And the four letters, the four Hebrew letters on the Hebrew dreidel, when you spin it, what it lands on is the kind of candy or gift that you get. And so it's a fun game that's played. And some children clean up by getting candy and others don't get as much when that happens. But those four letters represent the words Nes Gadal Hayasham, which I probably pronounced wrong, but it means a great miracle happened there. In Israel, they changed that last word because they are there. So a great miracle happened here, here in the land of Israel, here in Jerusalem, here uh, when our temple was able to be used again. So, and of course, as I said, Jesus celebrated Hanukkah in Jerusalem. Uh, in John 10, verses 22 and 23, we read about that. So it's fitting that December 25th was the day they had cleansed the temple because the temple represented the place you could go to and experience God, not just if you were Jewish, but also if you were uh, a Gentile. In fact, I, I want to show you this passage, Second Chronicles 6. So if you are newer to your Bible, you might want to first go to the table of contents and find Second Chronicles and turn there. But if you think you can get there by turning, go ahead and turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 6. Now, when you say 2 Chronicles 6 and announce for people to turn there, immediately people think of 2 Chronicles chapter 7. Whereas that great passage that says, if my people who are called by my name, well, you know, it's, it, it just uh, lays out for us how to turn back to God, doesn't it? You know, if they, if, if they will turn from their wicked ways... If, well, I should read it so I get it right, right? Since I'm there, I'm already in six. Let me read you verse 14. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Next verse says, now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that's made in this place. Now, that's Second Chronicles chapter seven. So after Solomon does a dedicatory prayer for the temple, in 2 Chronicles 7, God says, okay, you prayed it, and yes, when my people are called by my name, do humble themselves, pray, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways. But God is simply responding to what Solomon has said. When people understand that they're in sin and come to this temple, or if they're in a foreign land and turn their attention to where the temple is, then God wants you here and forgive them and restore them eventually in Israel to this land. So God is simply in 2 Chronicles 7 saying, okay, what you have prayed for, I will do as people interact with the temple. But 2 Chronicles 6 shows us the kind of thing Solomon was praying for to happen at the temple. And it was a place where he said, listen, if there's times of struggling and suffering in our country where, uh, you know, sin is being judged and it's obvious God is judging sin when he's withholding his blessings, when things aren't working out for us in any number of ways, when our enemies seem to be doing better than we are, uh, then Lord, uh, when your people get that and they understand they've sinned against you and they humble themselves, turn toward you and seek your face, won't you hear them and forgive? But it's very interesting. Hopefully you're in Second Chronicles 6 already. 
Verse 32 says, Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people, Israel, comes from a far country for the sake of your great name, they've heard of how great your name is, and your mighty hand and your outstretched arms. When he comes and prays toward this house, when he or she comes and prays toward this house, hear from heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you. And do as your people Israel, and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. It's beautiful because in a couple chapters, who comes? The Queen of Sheba. She's a very rich woman from another country. And uh, she comes from her Arabian country and comes up and uh, says, I've heard how great God is, Yahweh is, I want to hear more. Solomon shares with her more, and she says, this is awesome. Everybody on earth needs to know this. And she went back to her country rejoicing after giving some uh, large gifts. And uh, tremendous to think about her influence uh, already in uh, the area below Israel uh, before Christ came. So anyway, we're back to Matthew chapters uh, 1 and 2 now. But the point is that it's fitting that December 25th was the day they'd cleansed the temple because the temple did represent where people met with God, where they could experience him. And it's fitting that December 25th is the day that Christians chose to remember Jesus leaving heaven's perfect temple and coming to earth as a baby to become Emmanuel, God with us. God with us makes all the difference for troubled people in a troubled time, in a troubled world. That was true when Jesus first came. It's as true now as then. And I hope you understand that. Because of Jesus coming now, the whole world can experience God's salvation without traveling to Israel, although it's pretty cool to travel to Israel. And I hope to one day. But I know we all will uh, during the time of the millennium. Read Matthew 1 uh, with me. Uh, I'm going to start in verse 18. And I'm actually going to go down to chapter 2, verse 12. So I'll read, read it while you guys read along. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ, Christ is Greek for the Hebrew Messiah, the anointed one, the special one to come, the Old Testaments had predicted. The birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, engaged to Joseph, it was legally binding just as a marriage is now, um, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. We speak of the tremendous truth of the virgin birth. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, Yeshua, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus means God saves. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Isaiah had said, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. It's interesting, perhaps they had been influenced by Daniel the prophet. Perhaps they were from that general area and had uh, th what Daniel had said about the Son of Man coming one day had influenced them, and the prophecies very specifically that spoke of his coming for what is a first time and a second time that you can look and interpret from the Daniel. Perhaps these were some of those same men that Daniel at one time were told had ruled over 
back there in uh, Persia, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. You know, sometimes when we talk about the Christmas message, we forget that not just Herod was troubled, but it says all Jerusalem was troubled with him. We're so used to speaking of silent nights and babies that don't cry as if Jesus didn't cry when he needed a change or needed sleep or whatever those things. We're so used to those type images that we don't often see that when the message of Jesus through these wise men reached Jerusalem that the king of the Jews was here in fulfillment of the ancient prophecies, all Jerusalem was troubled. It was a turbulent time. Many of you are experiencing a turbulent time. All Jerusalem with him and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. What a wonderful prophecy from the prophet Micah. Just a few verses after that, it says, This one who will be born in Bethlehem, his goings forth are from of old, yea, of everlasting. So eternity, the eternal one, will step into time and be born in Bethlehem. Isaiah says he'll be born of a virgin, which means he won't have a sin nature. So he combines not having a sin nature with never making any sin choices, and that makes him able to save us because he's a second Adam, like the first Adam in all ways, except he never sinned, experienced all of life but never sinned. In Bethlehem of Judea, verse 7, Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Of course, that's a lie. He's not being truthful. He wants to kill the real king because he's a pretend king. After verse nine, verse 9, it says, After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And these famous words, verse 10, When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, exceedingly with mega joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped Jesus, then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh, money. They'll need money and they'll need essential oils. And there they are, are, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed their own country by another way. Christmas is for troubled people. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the beauty of the Christmas story. Thank you for the facts related to the incarnation of the Son of God. Thank you, Jesus, for your amazing love for us. We think of all that you left in heaven and all the things you experienced on earth that would be humiliating for any of us to experience. You willingly took on that humiliation, that humbling, so that you could sh share with a world obsessed with power that it's not about man's power, it's not about our might. It's about your power, your strength. It's not about man's wisdom, the ways men are, and women are wise in our own eyes, Lord. It's about your wisdom, the wisdom that comes from heaven. We thank you so much for the message of Christmas, Lord God. And I thank you that 
even though many people before me are experiencing just new levels of trouble and grief and anguish in their lives, Lord God, we thank you for how many of the people during the first Christmas were experiencing the same things. And we thank you that Christmas is about more than a few days in December. It's about eternal life. It's about eternity that we can always celebrate even when our earthly circumstances just flat out stink. Thank you that Christmas is for troubled people. In your name I pray, amen. Well, hopefully like you, I, 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 you're like me, you love looking at the Christmas chapters. You know, there's only five chapters, uh, two in Matthew and three in Luke, that really cover the Christmas story. All kinds of New Testament verses give us even greater perspective about what was happening, you know, like Galatians where it says, in the fullness of time these things happened. All kinds of Old Testament prophecies pointed toward to the Messiah being born into the world. There are about a dozen scenes in those five chapters in Matthew and Luke's Gospels that tell the Christmas story. And it's so simple that in a, a brief few minutes like we have together, we can just go back over those scenes. In scene one, there's a man, there's a woman, and there's a coming baby and an angel. Zechariah the priest... You thought I was going to say Joseph there, right? But it's interesting. There's two sets of families, aren't there? There's Zechariah the priest, his wife Elizabeth, and John the Baptist on the way. And that's announced to Zechariah by Gabriel. And Zechariah is troubled and fearful as he gets that news. And he's actually struck mute for struggling to believe in that moment. And then, of course, there's the other woman, man, and baby on the way, and an angel Mary, Joseph, and Jesus on the way announced by Gabriel to a very troubled Mary and fearful Mary. How can that be? Uh, because I've never known a man. I'm a virgin. Virgins don't have children. And, of course, uh, God was doing something very special in fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 7. All the way through chapter 9 there that the virgin will conceive and give birth to a child and you will call his name Emmanuel, which is God with us. And then in chapter 9, he says that this boy to be born is going to be called Wonderful because he is. He's absolutely wonderful. He'll be called Counselor because he has wisdom like none other. He'll be called the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And that was all happening in Mary's time, and yet it was so hard to understand. The next scene has pregnant Mary uh, hastily going to see pregnant Elizabeth and, and John the Baptist leaping in his mother's womb because Jesus is in the womb next door. Get it? The womb next door? Okay. I'm here all week. Then there's Mary's wonderful song. We call it the Magnificant, uh, in which she understands and she sings so beautifully and says so beautifully that she gets it, that this virgin birth will somehow fulfill all those ancient prophecies and covenants made to Israel on behalf of the world. But back in Matthew, and we just read this a moment again, we read of a troubled and fearful Joseph convinced that Mary must have cheated on him. She must have gotten pregnant by fooling around. Virgin birth, that's unheard of. That doesn't happen. That's the biggest uh, fib I've ever heard. And he's thinking, golly, she's so pure and she's so innocent. And yet she's telling me the, somehow the Holy Spirit did this. And, and so what does he do? He's planning to divorce her. And then he has an encounter with an angel. And the angel tells him, go ahead and with the marriage, fulfill your role in the divine drama. And we think about all the emotions that must have been circling around for Mary and Joseph. The relief she must have had when he said, okay, I'll go through with it. But uh, it hasn't happened yet in the narrative. The next scene in Luke's gospel is John the Baptist being born. 
Zacharias' speech is miraculously restored and the entire Judean hill country is talking about all of these things. So before the narrative is in this village of Nazareth or up there down in Bethlehem and all of a sudden before that it's happening there in the Judean hillside. In Zacharias' wonderful speech, he says that all this, he says what Mary says, all this somehow fulfills those ancient prophecies and covenants made to Israel and that mercy, redemption, and forgiveness are coming to the world. Then we read of a Roman emperor's decree from far off Rome. Caesar Augustus needs tax money and so he's having a census and they've got to all report back to their ancestral homeland so they can be counted, so they can pay taxes. And that led Joseph and his very pregnant, uh, engaged Um, fiance Mary from Nazareth to Bethlehem, the ancient home of the descendants of King David of the tribe of Judah. And oh, even the genealogies give us such drama in all this if you take the time to look at them, and many of you have. We think about the book of Ruth and how it relates when it talks about how Ruth, a Moabite woman, is miraculously put into the family of God uh, by faith in Christ. She says to her mother-in-law, Naomi, your God will be my God. And Boaz is so impressed with her faith and her character that he makes her his bride and he's willing to be her kinsman redeemer just as later their future descendant Jesus would be our kinsman redeemer, one who's like us, familiarly like us, who is able to purchase us out of sin's cost. And that's what the kinsman redeemer could do. He could buy back the family farm. He could put a new blessing on people that were far from God's blessing. But even that's not far enough because Bethlehem itself was the city that uh, we look at in the genealogies also and we talk about the birth of the twins Perez and Zerah by Tamar to Judah in one of the weirdest relationships the Old Testament speaks of. Somehow her tricking her father-in-law into impregnating her. She has these twins and Perez becomes the father of the town of Bethlehem. The town of Bethlehem. And at the end of Ruth 4, they bring in this great blessing and they say to Ruth, they say to her, hey, may God bless you the way he's blessed this mess that's become Bethlehem all the way back. And he mentions specifically those people in that line. Oh my goodness. The whole purpose of those genealogies is to link Jesus with those ancient prophecies. And that's why the entire New Testament begins by saying this is about Jesus Christ. This is the message about Jesus Christ, the good news about him, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And all those genealogies link back to the fact that this is the one the covenant promises are coming coming through for Israel and for the world. Well, Luke then tells of the shepherds coming from their fields to worship Jesus after hearing from an angel and an angelic choir. And the angels make clear that the birth of Jesus as the savior of the world was good news of great joy for all people and really all time. Mega fear had turned into mega joy. Matthew then tells us about the wise men from the east following a special star to Jerusalem. I don't know if you saw the news this past week it's talking about how uh, scientists have been able to do now nuclear fusion in the past nuclear fission that uh, fission that would uh, keep a lot of uh, it would be very unclean and you have to dispose of a lot of things but nuclear fusion holds promise for power that can be created and they talked about it in terms of this is the kind of power that's in the sun and in the stars and man is just now figuring out how to do a little bit. They said that maybe uh, you could, um, with, with what they did, they're now able to provide a little bit of power for 
a few hours, but they hold hope that as they harness it, it will one day solve a lot of mankind's energy problems and things. And when they said that this is the kind of power that you see created by stars and all those things, I thought of the star of Bethlehem and how God himself can do like this what people uh, are still trying to figure out. Isn't that neat? The special star. They followed the special star to Jerusalem and Bible experts told them there that according to the prophet Micah, the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. Their presence troubled Herod. And as I made a big deal about a little bit ago, their presence troubled all of Jerusalem. Even as they brought their special presence to Jesus and worshiped him. Back in Jerusalem, Herod was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. The next scene shows Joseph and Mary doing what all Jewish parents did in that day with a firstborn boy. They circumcised him on the eighth day, probably there in Bethlehem. And then on, after 40 days, they brought him to the temple because they were to bring him to the temple and offer the proper sacrifice for your firstborn boy. And that itself really stokes your imagination because the sacrifice they brought was turtle doves, not a, uh, a bigger animal. And that showed that they were poor because God had made um, combinations for the poor. Um, accommodations for the poor and that's what they were and uh, that sacrifice is really something too because uh, of the practice in Israel that when a firstborn boy was born you'd offer a sacrifice of an animal to set apart the boy and that was what was happening for baby Jesus just like all firstborn boys while there Simeon and Anna blessed Jesus saying that he would be the light of God's revelation to save Gentiles and the glory of God's people Israel Amazing! How did Simeon know? Maybe it's because he'd studied Daniel and thought the time must be near based on Daniel's prophecy about how it's going to happen after the decree and the years had passed. It's about right for that child to be born who will grow up to be the man. Maybe he thought that way. And of course, he knew that if a child like that was born, he didn't have to look all throughout the temple. He just had to look where they were bringing the sacrifices for the firstborn boy. And that's when he saw and the Holy Spirit said, that's the one. And he went up and talked to them and gave them the blessing. He told Mary, a sword's going to pierce your, through you also. You, you know, this is child's going to, all of Israel's going to have to make a decision about this boy. But you also are going to experience pain and trouble in your heart, Mary, as you see all these things. And we think about her watching her son hang on the cross for our sins and the turmoil and the heartache that must have been as a mother to do. She herself was one who needed to decide that he was more than her little baby. He was the savior of the world, the Messiah of Israel. Then there's the tragic scene of Herod having all the baby boys under two years of age in Bethlehem killed in hopes that the real king of the Jews would be killed with them. But divine guidance helped Joseph and his family escape to Egypt. And the final scene of Jesus' infancy shows Herod, the phony king, had died, but his son was reigning in his place, so an angel guided Joseph to return his family to Israel, not to Bethlehem, but up to Nazareth, where he took up his carpentry business again and tutored Jesus in those things as well. That's where he would be raised. You know, as we look at the Christmas passages, we hear a lot about salvation and peace and commitments to live righteously and serve God. But many references also tell us that those who experienced the first Christmas were troubled and fearful. 
And I just thought this morning, a week before Christmas, that was worth pointing out because of the mixed emotions and things that occur to us at Christmas and during these difficult days. I think of the personal pain many of us have as we face our addictions and our anxieties and our stress and our grief and our death and our difficult diagnoses and our breakups and our divorces and our prodigal children not coming home for Christmas and so many other things. There are lots of personal troubles represented in this room and those watching online. They had troubles the first Christmas also. And then I think of the kind of things that trouble us that are in the news. My goodness. Multiple people dying of fentanyl this week or two in Danville, Virginia. Multiplied by all the people across the state and country dying of drug overdoses and things too. My goodness. I think of statewide, how recently we had the violence at UVA and at the Walmart and uh, Newport News and other things happening. I think of the governor reporting uh, through a task force about the rise of anti-Semitism. Why do people in sin always target our Jewish friends? Why do some people do it somehow in the name of some kind of faith in Jesus when the New Testament makes clear that everything we are in the faith is dependent on those who have gone before and the way God has worked through Israel to bring Jesus into the world? I think of nationally. I mean, this is cause for lamentation in the church and in our country I think of nationally this past week, uh, you know, 1984, the book talked about Orwellian language when things are mislabeled and misnamed and then it acts like that's what truth is and how that is thrust upon society by leaders. I think about the Orwellian language in the Respect for Marriage Act, national legislation that's actually disrespect for what marriage fundamentally is. Marriage is the union of a man and woman, and it's not just for people of faith to say that, but it's also simple biological reality that says that. It is also what people that understand what's sociologically best for children say and will always say if they're being honest. But all that's being redefined in our day, and the passage of that law has a chilling effect, and it will have a chilling effect on freedom of speech and religious expression and if you think it's just that that's going to bother some preachers and churches and Christian schools and colleges you just haven't been paying attention the passage of that law means for everybody in this room wherever you work wherever you go to school it will mean a coming Shadrach Meshach and Abednego type moment for you will you take your stand like they did or will you compromise your faith As Herod and the Romans ruled Jerusalem, the people of faith in Israel had to choose whether to compromise with Herod and Rome's ways or whether to be faithful to God when it looked like God had forgotten them. When it looked like it was so far since his promise to come and now we're waiting his second coming even as they were waiting his first coming. And we experience some of these same emotions. Already in countries that have disrespected marriage like America has just now, preachers and evangelists have been arrested and put on trial. And some are imprisoned for that very thing. Just saying what's in the Bible. Just preaching the good news of salvation for those who repent, but then being specific about what you need to repent of. Here's what the prophet Isaiah said. Woe to those who call good 
Evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Here's what Zephaniah the prophet said. At that time, God said through Zephaniah, at that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps and I will punish the men who are complacent, those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. So many in our time believe there is no God or if there is, he won't judge. Folks, the God Zephaniah was talking about is the same God we serve now. And we are to fear him like the saints of old did. We are to define truth by what he says is truth. He knows a lot of people are saying that God will not judge sin and yet he will punish those who don't repent. You can count on it. He knows a lot of people of faith are remaining faithful to him and his word in these dark days before the rapture and he will reward them. He will reward you. He will reward you when you remain faithful to him. He knows all the ways we're troubled this morning. And those are some of the things I mentioned that just trouble us. But the Christmas accounts let us know some of the things that troubled them. In our passage, we read of three of them, Matthew chapter 1 and 2 there. Joseph was troubled as he considered his plans to divorce Mary. He thought, well, I love her and this doesn't make sense. And, and it's all he knew to do was to turn toward divorce until that angel came. Herod was troubled because he knew he was the false king of Israel. But why was all Jerusalem troubled with Herod? Why was Jerusalem also troubled with Herod? Well, because many of them had already compromised their faith. They had already compromised to gain Herod and Rome's favor. And if the real Jewish king, the real Jewish God, the real Jewish Messiah showed up right now, they were not spiritually ready. And if Christ returned right now, many of those who call out to his name would not be spiritually ready. The revelations of that first Christmas turned many lives upside down. And folks, that's how it's supposed to be. The message of Christmas is meant to turn our lives upside down and bring us from fear about all the things that we can't control, fear and anxiety about those things, to faith and from troubled hearts to hearts filled with peace and joy. We can't handle all the things going on in our personal lives or all around us, but God can, and we're with him. And even though things appear so sad for you, so hard for you, God will meet you right where you are. Because he's Emmanuel, God with us. Christmas teaches us that. And don't you forget as you go through that first Christmas without your spouse. Don't you forget as you go through that painful breakup or divorce or whatever's come your way. Don't you forget as you reckon with all the problems with inflation. And don't you forget as you reckon with just difficult days and diagnoses and all the other things we talked about earlier. That God with us changes everything because we can't help it. We think of temporary things. We think of just what's going on now, just what's going on around us, but Christmas puts eternity before our eyes. We too often make selfish decisions based on selfish priorities, and here comes the most unselfish act in the history of the world to us. God, inexplicably, will never be able to understand it because we're not worth it, we're such sinners. Those of us who have already been saved, we, 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 we've sinned enough since salvation to send us to hell all over again. And yet God still loves us and loves us anyway. And he factored all that in, he, coming to a people that would largely be ungrateful. To a people that largely would remain selfish. And he came and did what he did for us anyway. And Christmas starts all that. 
We are proud and untrusting and sinful. Here we see God work through humble believers doing the right thing based on heaven's call on their lives. Not doing the expedient thing, the easy thing, but going ahead and having that baby. Going ahead and marrying that fiance. Going ahead and doing that which appeared hard and inexplicable at the moment, but they did it because of their faith in the Lord. We live in days where might makes right. The powerful take advantage of the weak. And here comes God himself expressing the most vulnerable life ever by letting people like us take care of him through infancy and childhood. And there was no magic about it. He really did cry his eyes out at certain times when he was needing a diaper change or needing um, to sleep or needing to be fed or all those different things. And Mary, as a young mother, had to deal with all that and Joseph too and how God's going to provide and then inexplicably the provision comes through these wise men that are just confirming that all this is from God at the moment they needed that moment of confirmation. And God will send you what you need at the moment of confirmation also that he is with you and he is leading you even in hard days. We are so wise in our own eyes and the New Testament authors talk about God's wisdom being foolishness to men. Love the old Michael Card song, So We Follow God's Own Fool. This doesn't seem like the way we would do it. And yet God says, I'm not gonna talk about wisdom the way you guys do because you mess it up. And I think about those who uh, appear smart in our day. Neil deGrasse Tyson is Neil deGrasse Tyson is regarded as one of the great astrophysicists, I believe, and yet uh, he says we all may just be living in a computer simulation at the end of the day. Why does he say nonsense like that? Because inside he knows it's got to be creation, not evolution. It's got to be designed. There's elements of it everywhere, and so I'm unwilling to accept that there's a God, but we might be living in a computer simulation that aliens or people from the future are putting on us back in the past or something like that. We're so wise in our own eyes and we get, give each other awards and medals for saying the stupid things that get said. The dictionary changing definitions forever when everybody knows that that can't be changed. It is what it is. The Holy Spirit of God inside of us has told us that. And here comes Christmas where instead of pride, there's humility. Instead of the wisdom of the world, there's the wisdom of God. There's this vulnerability expressed and anything could have happened during Jesus to that during that time. He had to live the normal and full life that we all experience. He was under threat by the rulers of this age and yet as the true king of kings, he did grow and was preserved and God gave Joseph guidance when he needed it and they raised that boy and he went on to do all that he did. The message of Christmas challenges the decisions we thought we needed to make. Think about what it did for Joseph. It ended his plans to divorce Mary. He knew this was of God and that he should go through. For Zacharias and Elizabeth, it meant trips to the playground instead of to the senior saints meeting. And for some of you, how in the world did I uh, wind up doing all this parenting that is really grandparenting at this time of my life? And it's because God knows and God knew that that child needed you and your kids needed that help. And so he's put you in that key role now at this time of life. For the residents of Jerusalem, it meant being ready to follow the true King Jesus rather than compromising with the pretend rulers of this world. 
Christmas changes everything. You know, the children playing with their dreidels at Hanukkah, they're reminded that a great miracle happened in Israel, oil to keep the golden lampstand going for eight days. But Christmas reminds us of an even greater light that shines not for eight days, but forever. Jesus, the light of the world who forever enlightens those who receive him. No matter how dark the world around them is, he is their light. It's fitting that December 25th was the day they cleansed the temple because the temple represented the place you could go and meet with God. But we can celebrate something even greater on December 25th, cleansed hearts through faith in Jesus. If you meet Jesus, he's the one who will save you from your sins because he's the one who will save his people from their sins. Don't you want to be one of his people? Jesus came so we could connect, could connect with God the Father 24-7 from any area code on earth. And scripture proclaims that we who have received him as our Savior, as our Lord, as our King, are now each somehow temples of God the Holy Spirit. Amazing. God with us. Not just God around us, but God inside of us through faith in him and what he's done. I don't know exactly what your trouble is this morning. You might be fairly trouble-free and looking forward to a pretty normal Christmas, but the truth is things can change and the next trouble that you might have can be a phone call away. God with us makes all the difference now and for all of eternity. When you receive Christ, if you already know him, he's inside of you. God is with you. And if you don't know him, then... Friday was my 38th spiritual birthday. I was saved on December 16th, 1984, in the middle of the Christmas season. When everybody was talking about Jesus and this and that and the other, I felt like I was missing out on the whole real meaning for Christmas. And all of a sudden, I heard the gospel and was saved. And you can get in on that today, too, if you don't know Christ. You've got to express your faith in him. You have to realize that you are a sinner, that he's done what the Bible said he did for you, and you need to turn to him in faith. He's not going to make all your troubles go away. That's some other religion that's making a false promise. The passage I was saved with said that if you receive Christ, he and his words will be a foundation in your life to help you get through the troubles of this life, to get through life's storms. Bow your heads, please. Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Tabernacle Today. To learn more about the Tabernacle, please visit our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. There you may access additional Tabernacle Today podcasts as well as other resources. If you don't have a church home or happen to be visiting the area, we'd love to welcome you to one of our weekly services. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you back for another edition of Tabernacle Today.